If you were here uh, last week, uh, you'll remember that we looked at verse 8 of this chapter. And in verse 8, Paul gives Titus a positive command. Uh, He tells him to affirm constantly, uh, to remind his his hearers repeatedly that they should be careful to maintain good works. Paul re-emphasizes again what has been a theme in this letter, that those who have been saved, those who are trusting in Christ, those who have been redeemed, have been saved to do good. They're not saved because they are good. They're saved in order that they may do good. And Paul says to Titus, remind them of this constantly. Remind yourself constantly, remind your hearers constantly that they've been saved to do good. But in verses 9 to 11, he gives what we might describe as a a negative command. He's already told them to pursue good works, but in verse 9, he tells them that they must avoid something else. Pursue good But verse 9, avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law. In these few verses, Paul says to Titus, you must avoid foolish disputes. And I'm afraid I haven't got any clever structure this evening. I failed to be able to think of one. Uh, We're just going to be looking at that simple, in some ways, command of Paul, that we must avoid foolish disputes. As we pursue good, as we pursue loving God and loving others, part of that involves avoiding stupid and foolish and ignorant arguments. But I don't know about you. Uh, but when I first read this verse, uh, my first initial thought was, what on earth does Paul mean by genealogies? Is that what you thought? When you Paul says, avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law. Uh, because my mum, for example, she used to like doing Genealogies. She had a big sheet of cartridge paper where she had um, mapped out the history of our family up to five or six generations, if not more. And is Paul saying there that that's a foolish thing to do? Uh, it seems a bit harsh. Uh, surely it's not wrong to be interested in your family history. Well, I think we can confidently say that's not what Paul is talking about. But we can't say much more than that, to be honest. Uh, No one really seems to know what Paul means when he says that we should avoid genealogies. Uh, Read the commentaries, they don't know. Uh, Read uh, teachers throughout church history, they're not sure either. Possible it may be referring to some 
um, Gnostic teaching. There was a, a series of a group of false teachers at this sort of time who were called the Gnostics, and they had many strange beliefs about uh, gods who gave birth to gods, who gave birth to gods, who gave birth to gods, and they had these long genealogies of gods who people should worship. He might be referring to that. Uh, he might be talking about people who were too concerned with their ancestry and their lineage. And perhaps they boasted in who their father was or their grandfather or their great-grandfather. And they were stuck in the past and they were proud about their privileged ancestry. Uh, perhaps it was a little bit like the situation in Corinth. And then if you remember the opening chapters of First Corinthians, where Paul rebukes the church at Corinth uh, because they were having arguments amongst themselves, because some people were saying, oh, we come from Paul. And others were saying, oh, we come from Apollos. And they were fighting over the teacher who had most influenced their lives. And they had created little cliques, little groups, little followers of different teachers of the Bible. Uh, and they would describe themselves as of Apollos, or of Paul, or of whoever. It might be that that is what was happening here. But whatever the reason was, um, unfortunately, it's lost to us today. We cannot say for certain. But even the fact that we don't know what it is, is itself instructive. Um, all of God's word is useful. Uh, all of God's word is profitable. And there's a reason why we don't need to know what this particular argument was about. Uh, because the Bible isn't interested in giving us a long list of all the possible useless arguments we could have. Can you imagine how long the book would be? I mean, you probably think it's quite long as it is. But can you imagine if the Bible gave us a huge long list of all the possible useless arguments you could have? It would be impossible. It would be endless. The number of things we can argue about is infinite. Uh, my granddad always used to say about um, certain committees where uh, there could be 10 people but 11 opinions. Um, and there's just an endless number of ways we can argue about pointless things. And the Bible's not interested in giving us a list. Instead, what the Bible focuses on is what is most important. What the Bible focuses on is telling us what is the truth. Not describing all the various errors, but describing in detail what is the truth. Um, if you're an investigator trying to find, uh, trying to decide which coins are fake and which ones are genuine. You don't waste time looking at all the fake coins which you know are fake and try to memorise what they all look like. It'd be an endless job. What you do is you examine a real coin, a coin you know to be real. And if you know that coin well enough, you will be able to recognise the fakes when they arrive. Uh, if you get to know the genuine, then you can spot the fakes, however many are made. Uh, if you're 
you might have seen at airports these people who are there to greet a passenger from a flight and they have a little um, piece of paper with a name on it. And perhaps that um, person to welcome the person flying in um, hasn't seen this person in real life before, but they've examined a picture of them. Now, it would be daft, wouldn't it, if that person decided to look at every picture of every person who wasn't the person they were looking for. It would be an endless job. There would be billions of people you'd have to memorise so you knew which one it wasn't. Of course you wouldn't do that. You would look at the person you did want to recognise. And if you knew that face well enough, you would spot them even amongst hundreds of people because you've memorised what that person looks like. So the important thing here isn't what this arguments about genealogies was. The point Paul is making is that it was getting off the truth. It was getting sidetracked by something which wasn't important in comparison to what was most important. Did you notice how Paul describes these arguments? He says, but avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. He says, don't waste time on these things because they don't have any value. They're pointless. Instead, focus your attention on what matters most. And all the way through this letter, Paul has been seeking to teach Timothy, teach Titus, This is what matters most. This is what is most important. Focus your attention on this and you won't be distracted by all these other things. To put it short and simply, Paul says to Titus, focus on the word of God. Focus on the commandments of the living God and you will not go far astray. Don't be distracted by all these other things that other people bring up, but set your mind, set your heart on what God says. That is almost certainly what he's speaking of when he says, the end of the middle of verse 9, about strivings about the law. Now, it's important to realise there that Paul's not talking about the law of God, per se, uh, because Paul has already mentioned these sort of people earlier in the letter. Uh, some time ago we looked at this, so you may not remember, uh, but earlier in chapter 1, in verses 13 and 14, or really uh, verses 10 to 14, Um, Paul tells Titus to warn certain people who were insubordinate and unruly. Uh, That's how he describes in verse 10. And then he says in verse 13, Therefore rebuke them sharply, this is chapter 1, rebuke them sharply that they might be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. Paul says to Titus, don't be distracted by people who are turned aside from God's words to follow the commandments of men. Uh, That's what Paul's referring to here in verse 9 of chapter 3 when he talks about strivings about the law. And we know this 
Because this was exactly the problem that Jesus Christ himself faced when he was on earth. Now, you remember, who were his chief enemies? The Pharisees. And time and time and time again, Christ found himself in opposition with the Pharisees because they were ignoring God's word and they were replacing God's words with man's commandment. They were sidelining what God had actually said and they were putting their own traditions in first place. Now let me read from Mark chapter 7, verse 2 onwards, and we can see a perfect example of this. Mark's Gospel, chapter 7. This describes the Pharisees and what their response was when they saw that Jesus' disciples ate without washing their hands, without going through the rituals which the Pharisees said they should go through. Uh, This is what Mark chapter 7 says, verse 2. When they, that's the Pharisees, saw some of Christ's disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. When they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels and couches. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked Christ, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? He answered and said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honours me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God... You hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups, and many other such things you do. He said to them, all too well, you reject the commandment of God, that you may keep your tradition. Do you hear what Christ is rebuking the Pharisees for? He's telling them that over many years, they've built up many traditions to do with washing cups and washing hands and washing all sorts of different things. But these traditions came from their own mind. They didn't come from God. They may have started in the dim and distant past from some sort of reading of God's words, but over the years they'd taken on a life of their own. And the problem wasn't in the tradition as such. There's nothing wrong with washing a cup per se, what was wrong was they were getting so obsessed with the tradition that they forgot the point which God had commanded in the first place. They got so obsessed with what they had created that they forgot the principle that God had commanded in the first place. Let me give you a really silly illustration. Uh, But as children perhaps as adults, Uh, we were taught when crossing a road, we need to look left and right, weren't we? Very basic rule, and it's a good rule to teach. Before you cross a road, you must look left and right. But can you imagine, as the years go on, 
that this rule gets taught and taught and taught till it comes to the point that people start arguing. And they start arguing, well, is it more important to look right first or to look left first? Uh, How long should we look left and how long should we look right? Should we look up and down as well? Can you imagine if all these arguments started happening around this simple uh, instruction to look left and right, and people got so obsessed with the instruction that they forgot what it was there for and got flattened by the next lorry which came by? That's exactly what was happening with the Pharisees. They had forgotten the point of the commandment. The point of the commandment to look left and right is to not get hit by a truck or a van or a car coming the other way. That's the point. That's why we should look left and right. If the road is closed, then there's far less need to look left and right. The point is to remember the principle. That's why it's important to remember God's words. But the Pharisees were so busy arguing about these uh, more insignificant Uh, less significant things that they had forgotten God's commands. And it actually created traditions which went against what God had commanded in the first place. That was how warped and twisted they had become. It was a problem for them in their day, uh, but it's still a problem for us today. Uh, This problem of foolish disputes about less important things about the traditions of men still continues in churches right to this day Um, and I'd like to give just two or three examples and it's important to give examples because although it's risky because it means putting your head above the parapet and risk getting shot it's important because otherwise we don't see how this passage applies to us here today Uh, We're not obsessed, I don't think, with washings of cups and the things the Pharisees were. Uh, They live in a different time with different priorities. But other things can seem very important to us, which are less important to God. So let me give a few examples. Um, Some churches uh, can get very um, uh, argumentative about whether there should be a pulpit or a lectern. Should people preach from a lectern or a pulpit? Should there be a lectern at all? And churches have divided and split over this question. But what does God's word say about the subject? Does God's word talk about what we should preach behind? No. Jesus once preached from a boat. (laughs) We could do that. Because the important thing isn't what you are preaching on or behind. What matters is what you are preaching. Are you preaching the truth? Are you preaching the gospel? That's what God cares about. You could be standing on a packing case. And as long as what you are preaching is true and glorifies Christ and teaches people the way to be saved, God is pleased. 
On the other side, if you're preaching from the most ornate pulpit, in the largest pulpit, in the most central place, in the highest place in the building, but you're preaching lies, God hates that preaching. Because it's not about what you preach behind or what you preach on. It's about the words that are being preached. That's an example of a way people can get sidetracked from what is most important into a foolish dispute. Uh, Let me give another example. Um, Now, before I give this example, may I say that I like the fact that we have an evening service. I want us to have an evening service. If I had my way, I would almost like church to be all day long. If we had breakfast and had lunch and that all together, all day on Sunday. But some people get very argumentative that there must be a morning service and there must be an evening service. But what does the Bible say? The Bible doesn't tell us what services we should have during the day. What the Bible says is, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. Whether you meet once a day, twice a day, three times a day, all day, whatever you do, do not forsake meeting together. That is what is most important. There are some people who religiously go to church every morning and every evening, but they have no love for the people in the church. They have no thought for others in the church all week long. And that is not pleasing to God, even though they come morning and evening. There are other churches which only meet in the morning, but they love each other. They have a fervent, abiding love which Paul commands in this letter. And that brings pleasure to the heart of God. That's another example of a way in which we can get sidetracked by foolish disputes instead of keeping to what is most important, that we love one another and don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together, how often, however often that might be. Listen to what God's word says, not merely human traditions. Let me give just one more example. Uh, I've heard of uh, some churches splitting over whether they use hymnals or screens. Um, Whether we should be singing from a book like this or whether we should be reading the words in front of us on a screen. But what those disputes can so often do is forget the commandment of God. What does God say? He says, just sing. (laughs) That's what God commands. He doesn't tell us the manner in which we should sing in the sense of whether it's a book up here or words up there. He says, I want you to sing from your heart. I want you to sing sincerely. I want you to mean the words that you say. Uh, Some people can read diligently from their hymn book and yet not mean a word that they say. There can be no joy, no love in their hearts, and that is not pleasing to God. Other people can read it from a screen, and yet there is joy in their heart. They do love God. They do mean the words that they say, and their words are benefiting those around them. And that is pleasing to God. Do you see how we can get away from the actual words of God, and we can start loving our traditions more than the principle that God actually said? 
That's why Paul says here in verse 9, avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law. That's the human commands, the human traditions that he's already mentioned. But focus on what God says. Listen to God's word. Listen to his commands. That is what matters most. So that's a good test uh, for all of us. Uh, Before we get into a big argument with someone else, ask yourself this question. Am I motivated by a zeal for what God says? Does God say something in his words, and that is what is motivating me in this argument? Or am I motivated by something outside of God's word, some desire of my own heart, some tradition in my own mind? Are we zealous for God, or are we merely zealous for our own tradition? That's a good question to ask ourselves before we ever get into any dispute with other people. Are we truly fighting for God, as it were, or are we fighting for something else? And it really matters. Uh, It really matters what we do and do not argue about for the reason Paul gives in verse 10. Uh, Did you notice what he says? He says, reject a divisive man, and that means man or woman, Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. That's pretty serious language, isn't it? Paul says that if there's someone who insists on arguing about things of less importance, arguing like the Pharisees about the washing of plates or whatever it might be, if they do not listen to the first rebuke, If they do not listen to the second rebuke, that's what admonition means here in verse 10, if they don't listen to your repeated rebukes to them, he says reject it, reject them. Stop trying to argue with them. He says they're warped and sinning. They have a character flaw which you will not overcome yourself. He says do not waste time trying to convince that person. They have another motivation. They're not truly fighting for God's words. They're fighting for something else. Paul says avoid them. Don't be distracted by them. Instead, rebuke them. And if they don't listen, reject them. It's very strong language from Paul. He's not saying cease to love them. He's not saying cease to pray for them. But he's saying, cease being distracted by them. Uh, Don't let them govern the issues in the church. Because he says they are warped and sinning. You know what warped means, don't you? Uh, Warped is when something has a kind of bent, like a tree. And it's supposed to grow in one way, but it's growing in another way because it's warped. It's gone the wrong way. And Paul says there are people who are like that. Uh, They have a kind of pattern of behavior which is warped, which is twisted. And I'm sure we all know people like this. People who are argumentative for the sake of being argumentative. Uh, People who are contrarian just because they want to contradict. 
people who have little hobby horses which they love to talk about, love to argue about. And no matter what the subject, they will get it round to their special favourite subjects. Those are the kind of people Paul's talking about. And he's saying they're warped, they're twisted, they're sinning. They're not to be taken seriously in the sense of they should not be given a hearing. Because what God wants, what God wants are people who love from a pure heart. He wants people who have been transformed by his spirit, who are being transformed by his spirit, to love God and love others. None of us are there perfectly. All of us are flawed in many ways, but we should be growing in that right direction. Not warped in the wrong direction, but growing in love for God and love for each other. Not like so many people who I sometimes see and have met in the past, who they go from church to church and every church they find, there's something not quite right. Something doesn't quite fit them. And in the end, they can't find any church. And they end up, perhaps, um, finding a church in another country somewhere online. And you see how warped that is, because they've forgotten the very command of God, which says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. So in their effort to be pure, in their effort to be holy, in their effort to serve God, they've actually ended up disobeying him. Do you see how warped that is? That's exactly the fault that the Pharisees had. They thought they were serving God. They thought they were following God's words. But heaven wept. God wept at their behavior. You might say, well, why does the Bible say that? It does. Remember Jesus looking over Jerusalem? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You who stone the prophets who were sent to you. How often would I have gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. The Pharisees thought they were so holy. They thought they were so pure. And yet they stoned the very messengers which came from God. They thought they were serving God when they actually killed his messengers. That's how warped they had become. And Paul says, beware, Titus. Don't become like them. Avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Instead, fix your gaze on the truth. Love the truth. Get to know the truth. Learn what you can about Christ in his words. Love the gospel. Seek to share the gospel with others. Don't get sidetracked by rabbit trails in other directions. But tell people of Christ. Listen to what God has to say and seek to obey him and you will not be sidetracked down foolish disputes. That's what we should all be aiming for. That's what we should all be in love with. It's a tragic fact, unfortunately that many churches can be known more for the things they hate, the things that they're against, and less about the things they love. 
That's what we should be chiefly known for, our love for the truth and our love for Christ. And that's why I've chosen uh, as our final hymn, number 702, uh, a hymn which speaks of Christ as the rock. And it's encouragement to us to run to the rock rock that is Christ, Uh, not relying on our own thoughts, not relying on our own commandments, not relying on our own thinking, but listening to what Christ has to say to us and standing on his words. Let's stand to sing in closing. 702. O safe to the rock that is higher than I, my soul in its conflicts and sorrows would fly, so sinful, so weary, thine, thine would I be. Thou blessed rock of ages, I'm hiding in thee. So let's stand to sing 702.